Good morning, church. It's so good to see you, to worship with you, to learn some new music for this month, and to cast our vision on the house of Zion up on this great hill. Um, it's good to be with those online as well, if that's where you're worshiping with us today. We're starting a series, we started it last week, and we're in week two of this sermon series called Songs for the Journey, in which we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, these are the psalms ranging from 120 to 134, and they're reviewing them through the lens of the Israelites who traveled to Jerusalem for worship. Last week, Pastor Tim led us through the opening of this psalm uh, list, 120, and he challenged us to continue to be a people of peace in the midst of war. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 121, and it's a song of confidence. And we're going to ask ourselves, how can we have confidence in the Lord? We'll reflect on where our hope ultimately comes from. Let's pray. Abba, Father, you are indeed a strong protector, our mighty fortress. And we are eternally grateful for the ways in which you keep us. Now may the words that I speak be honoring to you, and our hearts be open to your word and soft to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. When Aaron and I lived in Honduras, we took on the challenge of climbing the greatest mountain in Honduras. It's Mount Salake. I took a picture of it. This is from the school courtyard that we taught at. Beautiful scene to have at your school, uh, just a, a mountain, the tallest mountain of Honduras viewed from the courtyard of where you, where you learn and where you teach. We knew that this was the tallest mountain of Honduras, standing at almost 9,500 feet, but what we didn't know is that over two-thirds of the slopes in this mountain are over 60 degrees incline. If you don't know your math, 60 degrees can be pretty steep. We probably also didn't realize how unathletic we were at the time and overestimated our ability to climb said mountain. I was given a false sense of hope anyway because uh, our, our students told us some things about this mountain. They, they had stories that they climbed this mountain in just a handful of hours. Uh, they didn't carry backpacks with trail mix or granola or even multiple water bottles because they could do it so fast. And up the mountain were natural water sources, so you could just bring one water bottle and refill it along your way. After hearing this, the competitor in me, I knew I could take on this mountain. I was ready for this challenge. I wanted to run up it. I knew personally that I could conquer it, no problem, after listening to how easy my students had done it. Much to my dismay, the other teachers, however, had a different idea. They suggested, let's pack, just in case. I conceded, and I packed with them. But my posture looking up to this hill was one of confidence. Confidence in myself. Probably, if I knew what I was about to embark on, I might not have been so confident. Or maybe I would have been more confident in something that was helping me get there. The Israelites knew better, however. 
they've done this journey to Jerusalem time and time again. They've done it before. And they know that the trip isn't an easy one. You can grab your Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 121. And as you do, uh, we'll take a look at our layout. The psalm starts with a question and an answer in verses 1 and 2. And then we're given a promise of protection from verses 3 to 6. And then an ending promise at the end of the passage. Is, uh, it's, it's a promise that goes on forever. It's a, it's a promise of eternity. And it's a capstone for this message. So starting in verses 1 and 2. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where do they come, come from? Let's pause right there for a second. Commentaries are divided on exactly what the hills might mean in this passage. It could represent just something that's powerful, something mighty in front of you. Um, the one looking at this mighty wall might be tempted to look at it as a sense of security, uh, a fortress of sorts, protection from armies, protection from inclement weather, um, or maybe even a place to flee, a stronghold to go in times of trouble. Another way to look at this hill is potentially as a, a place of pagan worship. It wasn't uncommon at this time for people to, to view the hills as a, a place of ascension that maybe these other gods, maybe the god of the moon or the god of the sun, maybe some higher powers up there vaguely, a lowercase god. Uh, surely um, that pagan worship drew into some of the um, surrounding um, thought processes. Or a third view, which I believe in our context to be the most convincing and given the evidence, is that these hills are a challenge for the one journeying on them. A pilgrim traversing any mountain would certainly look at this as a, a daunting task and probably have some worries about how to complete it. Now, the confusion about these hills probably become, uh, come about because a lot of theologians can't pin down exactly how it was penned. Uh, it could be that David was traveling up the hill and uh, on his way to worship or even down the hill. If you look further ahead at verse 8, the psalmist mentions you're coming and you're going. So maybe he was leaving this mighty hill and he was writing the psalm. Um, or it could be possible that he was writing about uh, an overall sense of, of worship throughout the journey of your life and the troubles that we see. Now, all three options are certainly possible, and not knowing exactly the context in which it was penned shouldn't deter us, and it shouldn't bother us, because the answer remains the same. In verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord. The answer is, ultimately, God is greater than any one of these three assumptions. Either he's greater than the help of the perceived protection of this hill, or he's a greater help than the false gods, which is just another way of saying a fake help, these pagan gods. Or he's greater than the challenge ahead of me. In the larger context of the psalm's use and in the way that we're studying it in the psalms of ascent, these are songs that are sung by Israelites on their way to worship up this mountain. Jerusalem is, lo is a city located in a mountainous area, so no matter which direction they were traveling from, they would have to ascend to get there. And it's common that along the way they might encounter thieves in these hills. Maybe the thieves viewed the mountains at a, as a source of security, a stronghold. 
Along the way, they would face other troubles as well. If you look ahead really quickly, uh, verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. Hiking up these hills certainly would be difficult, made difficult by slopes, by loose rocks, things like that. Or in verse 5, the sun and the moon shall not strike you by day and by night. There's different dangers that happen in any journey throughout the day and throughout the night. Or in verse 8, he will keep your coming and going. As we said before, the Israelites would worship on this hill and then come back down. So it seems like there's a theme of of a challenge in this mountainous journey. This journey was riddled with dangers, and anyone starting this journey may not be so confident that they're going to finish it successfully. But the psalmist seems pretty confident here. He asks a question after seeing the challenge ahead of this mountain, and he gives us an answer that he is confident in God. See, unlike me in my hike up Mount Salake, I was confident, but in two faulty ways. First, I had no idea what I was getting into. And second, I was confident in me, that I could make the journey. Had I known what I was getting into, I might have prayed a little bit more. I might have asked for my foot not to slip. I might have asked for protection from the hot sun or the cold night, or maybe for less mosquitoes. But simple as I am, I often look at a problem and think, how can I complete this task? Without the help of others? Yeah. Without the help of God? More often than I'd like to admit. I'm not sure, uh, I doubt that I'm alone in thinking that when I look at a problem, I probably begin thinking, how can I work this out? Instead of how is God gonna help me? Take a minute to reflect on where you might be in that dynamic. Maybe if you were like me in my hike up the mountain, you, you maybe don't recognize the trouble up ahead. So you don't ask for help. Or maybe you size up the problem and you think, I got this. What hills are in front of you today? Do you see them? Can you recognize what's in front of you? And where do you seek help? It's easy for us, especially in our part of the world, to, to think, I'll get help from my financial security, my bank account. Or I'll get help from my retirement plan. I've been doing really good in that. Or, you know, this problem that's really happening in my society, I'm going to leave that up to uh, a political party. I think that'll help me out in this area. When do we turn and say, God, I can't solve this. I need your help. Now, these problems are going to happen. We're not promised, even in this psalm, an easy life. Notice back in verse 2, we're we're given I statements and my statements. We're in first person here. And then in the third verse, we're going to transition to second person. And he begins to explain, the psalmist explains to you now, the reader or potentially the listener in this song, about how you can gain confidence in the Lord. So we see in verses 3 through 6, a promise of protection. We 
We can read this psalm like a conversation between two friends on their journey. You can imagine the, the one who's writing the psalm. I've gone on this trek before. I have this experience. And speaking from experience, I've looked ahead at this journey, and I know that my help comes from God. Why, the other person might ask. The answer is in the verses ahead. The next few verses will kick off a series of circling promises that expand and ultimately end in a promise of eternity for God's people. And if we look at them as a whole, before diving into each individual, we'll notice a few things. Up on the board, you see the word keeps is listed six times. Depending on your translation, you might have the word uh, protector or maybe uh, watches. He watches you. The word here is shamar, which uh, means that he cares. He attends with care. And you might notice that he doesn't just attend to care for one person or another. He attends to, uh, to both Israel. See that in verse 4? That's the corporate you. He cares to, uh, for us as a body. And then he cares for the individual you. And the yous are scattered all throughout the text. And then we'll notice the ways in which God keeps you, his shamar on this journey. Starting in verse 3, we see that uh, any, um, we have the image of a, of a foot being held as stable. Any rock climber or hiker will know that one false move could be your last if you don't have a strong foothold. At the end of verses 3 and 4, God is mentioned as the one who doesn't sleep or slumber. So not only is his protection through this journey sufficient, but he doesn't sleep on you. He's not going to quit on you. He's not going to stop. And then in verse 5, he's described as your shade at your right-hand side. Of course, anyone on a long trek is going to want shade, some protection from the sun. And the significance of a right-side shade is that it's a level of elevated importance. So God protects, um, God protects in a way that we ultimately cannot do so to ourselves or to others. His protection is elevated. And he does so day and night, verse 6. Now, some believe, uh, believe the moon and the sun to be a couple different things here. I just want to look at them real quick. It could be a literal protection from the moon and from the sun. They're thinking, Michael, like this. Well, the sun, you know, that causes a lot of damage, the rays from the sun. It could cause me sunburn, uh, heat stroke long-term. It could cause me cancer. Okay, that makes sense. The moon, it's a little bit of a stretch, but maybe their thought process is, well, Latin for moon is Luna, and go a couple, a couple bits past that. Lunatic stems from Luna. I don't know about that one. We do see, however, often in the Psalms and in poetry as a, um, as a whole and, and the narrative of, of our scripture as a whole, that the sun and the moon, the day and the night, is often used poetically to represent a consistency in the scriptures, something that's going to keep going and going, your day and your night. In other words, it's a depiction of protection all of the time. He's a protection at your right side. He's the best form of protection, and he does so ceaselessly. Now, if we tie all of these observations together, what do we get? We get, with God, I'm secure. He won't sleep on me. 
He's the best source of protection, and he always is. It's starting to sound like God is promising, or the psalmist is promising, an easy journey. To modern ears, maybe picking up on this Christian thing, following God, means that this journey is going to be smooth, one without any problems. That's prosperity gospel, and that cannot be true. We know that because a lot of bad things happen to us. A lot of bad things happen to people who followed God in the Old Testament, too. So what's going on here? How can this promise be true, and yet we still have problems in this life? I was listening to a sermon uh, from Alistair Begg, and he puts it like this. We've lived long enough to know that there is no exemption from the rigors of life. Our loved ones die. We get sick. Businesses fail. Children will disappoint us, and we will disappoint one another. So when we read something like this, if it's difficult to understand, take a step back to look at the greater picture. Take what the Bible says in context of all in which it reveals. So we could easily do this with a number of uh, character narratives from the Bible. Let's, let's look at uh, Joseph from the Old Testament. How would he sing a psalm like 121? Down in the pit, the Lord will not let your foot be moved. Okay. Stripped naked and sold as a slave, God will keep you. Sold into the home of Potiphar and despised by his family. So what's the answer here? Fast forward a few chapters. You intended this for evil. God intended it for good. God intends these things for good. If we look at these verses closely, we're not promised an escape from pain or suffering. Did you notice all the way back in verse 3? He will not let your foot be moved. Doesn't say you're not going to stub a toe. Doesn't say your knee won't get some scratch marks. Doesn't say you're not going to suffer an illness, an injury, or an accident. Yet in spite of these things, somehow you're secure in the Lord. Okay, how are we to be secure? In verse 7 and 8, we see one of the greatest promises come to a head. Let's look at that together. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time, forth, and forevermore. What do you make of all evil in verse 7? You know, we might be tempted to say, you know, I've got all sorts of evil things happening to me. This verse must be wrong. We need to differentiate between a character-building struggle and the evil which could overtake us. In his book, uh, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says this, At no time is there the faintest suggestion that life of faith exempts us from difficulties what it promises is preservation from all the evil in them. On every page of the Bible, there is recognition that faith encounters troubles. If that isn't true, 
then why would Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? So he will keep evil away from us, even in spite of the troubles in which we are experiencing. And he will keep your life. Look at verse 7. Some translations say soul. And I think that's probably a more accurate translation here because um, considering the next line, if we look ahead in verse 8. The Lord will keep your going and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Your life and your soul, they're going on past what happens here. And this promise right here is the only reason that this text as a whole should matter. The final promise. The only reason we should be excited about Psalm 121 is if this last line is true. It's one thing to promise that during this life you're going to be protected from all sorts of evil, but then once you die, we don't know what happens. It's another thing to say you will be protected forevermore. Is God able to promise us a security into eternity? I was so excited for that mountain climb in, in Mount Salake. It had promised me some internal reward for conquering it. I was so confident. And I didn't want to pack anything. And I knew if we just left in the morning, we'd probably be back before sunset. I knew that we wouldn't run into any troubles. I'm glad I prepared per the other teacher's suggestion because we were met with an onslaught of difficulties. From the very beginning, mosquitoes were a huge problem. I think someone had bug spray. It didn't work. I pulled my socks up as high as I could to cover any exposed skin. There was incredibly steep and muddy parts of the terrain. Uh, we thought that there would be a clearly marked trail. There was for about a quarter of the time. We had to kind of guess how to get up the mountain for most of it. Sometimes, um, there was some water, but it didn't look fresh or clean like my students described it. It was a little murky, bugs, moss kind of stuff growing in it. We ended up having to camp overnight. The tents dropped dramatically, and in spite of having sleeping bags, we all stayed up shivering that night. We woke up unsure if we should just turn back, but thought, we've already gone this far, you know, we have to finish now, right? I want to reach the top anyway, I've got to see this amazing view. I've already done this much work. I need something out of this. So we're going and we're going. It finally, after hours, and we're exhausted, and the air's thinning, so it's harder to climb, we start to see the, the trees clear. We see an opening and think, this is it. We've made it. I'm exhausted, but I'm so happy that finally it's over, and I get to see this amazing view, and I'm rewarded with this. Beautiful. <laughs> this is when we realized that we were hiking in what's called a cloud forest. We were sitting in a cloud and couldn't see this amazing view. We got to the top of the mountain to be visited with this reality that this, this hope, this dream for this mountain climb, it was going to leave us short. It was going to leave us feeling like something was missing. 
I was left feeling empty. Like, sure, I had done the climb, but what the journey had promised me in my conquering it, I had this picture of just feeling so good about this deed that I had done. It didn't fulfill me like I thought it would. And even if we had a beautiful scenic view, it probably wouldn't have been fulfilling like I thought it would either. Not in the truest sense, anyway. We see this evidenced by many people around the world who have it all and they're left wanting more. Uh, Alex Hanold is a good example of this. He's a, a famous rock climber. In one of his toughest climbs, he scaled Yosemite's uh, El Capitan. Many people have done that before. What's the big deal? He was the first person to do it in what's called free solo, which means he has no ropes. He has no protection. There's exponentially more risk. If his foot's not secure, it's not just the climb that's over, especially when it's a 3,000-foot climb. After years and years of training, he climbed it in under four hours, faster than I did my climb. When he finished, he was presented with a question by one of his friends. What's next? He just climbed something that people thought was impossible to do as a free solo, and the first question is, what are you going to do next? You would think his response would be, that was my life's goal. I'm done. I'm fulfilled. I'm now successful. But his response wasn't that. His response was, I'm going to start training. And he does. He starts doing some pull-ups, ready for the next climb. This was his life's goal prior to completing it. But this goal had nothing to do with eternity. So the promise that it gave him lacked a fulfillment of eternity. The Christian walk has a big promise that it won't fail. The promise to be kept forevermore. But this promise comes at a cost. Jesus Christ left the security of his mighty fortress higher than any mountain that we would have here in the heavens to become a man in a world full of sin. His journey riddled with danger. His vision of the road ahead was perfect, and yet he came to do the unthinkable. Jesus, before lifting his eyes to Golgotha, the hill on which he would die, he turned to the Father in prayer, seeking help. Meanwhile, his closest friends slept. He prayed, thy will be done. And on the cross, Jesus was not protected from all kinds of evil. He took that on so that this psalm could be true. That you and I would be secure in the Lord. And now when we say, my hope comes from the Lord, we do so finding our hope and security only in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Our big idea for today. As we journey in this life, let us turn confidently to the Lord as our help. I want to challenge you, church. 
as we look to the hills of our future, to ask yourself, am I ascending this life with my safety gear? If we do truly believe that God will not let our foot slip, in what ways am I holding on to something else? Are there safety nets that I've put in my life to make me feel more secure than my relationship with God? None of these safety nets are bad in and of themselves, but if our security is, fa- is found in them over God, it's idolatry. We must always turn back to Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. God's church is exhausted here and encompassed by dangers. Our comfort is that God will guard us his inheritance and lead us home to himself. He does lead us to himself. His protection is for that. And yet, if you haven't turned your life over to Jesus, maybe today's the day. Do you feel a pulling on your heart back to the Lord? Maybe you're tired of trekking this hill that you've been journeying on without the help that you need. Maybe this old hymn will help. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Father, your word is true, and your way is righteous. May we hold your promises near to our hearts. Lord, don't sleep on us. Keep our feet steadfast. Keep us in our coming and our going, and keep us forevermore. In Jesus' name.